This episode is sponsored by Evel, a company dedicated to shifting the way we see autism. I'm not sure if you picked up on it, but Evel is actually Love Backwards. It was inspired by an autistic boy named Luca who wrote Love Backwards so some plants on a pot could read it. Stop for a minute and let that soak in. This kid was four, and he cared so much for the plants that he wanted to write them a love note in a way that they could read it. I think this is a great example of the surprising and unique gifts that autistic people can bring to the world. If only we shift our perspective so we can see it. Evel makes adorable hats, jewelry, and shirts, and the proceeds go to charities dedicated to spreading autism awareness and acceptance. I love this company and all the good it's doing. So if you're an autism advocate, ally, or just like to use your purchasing power for good, check out Evel at their website. I am dash love.org today. And for our listeners, they're offering 15% off your purchase. Just use the promo code no sex at checkout. That's I am dash love.org with the promo code no sex for 15% off at checkout. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Haley Augusta, and I'm your host of No Sex in the Suburbs, a podcast about marriage, sex, and momming so hard. Today, we're going to talk about when your kid needs an IEP. If you're not familiar, IEP stands for Individualized Education Plan, and it is what the public school, by law, must provide all kids who are sufficiently behind. So I wanted to do this episode now for a couple of reasons. One is that it's springtime and even though IEPs happen year round, I feel like spring is when we're wrapping up this school year, we're thinking about next year and, you know, did we hit our goals this year? What are the goals for next year, etc. But also, a good girlfriend of mine called me the other week and said, "Haley, the school teacher and principal called me out of the blue and said, We think that your son is so behind in reading that we think he's going to need an IEP. And her initial reaction, of course, was that she was just pissed. You know, how dare you say that my kid is behind? Clearly, we can work on this at home. You know, he doesn't need this, blah, blah, blah. And I get it because feeling and hearing that your kid has a deficit or a deficiency and is behind is tough to take as a parent. And then on the flip side, once you get services, they may not be what you think your kid really needs. So I wanted to do this episode for anyone who is at the beginning of their IEP journey. It's a really daunting process, basically, to go up against the state. And the tricky thing is the people who are involved in deciding to what extent your kid needs help are the same people who ultimately have to pay for it, right? It's the school district. So that's kind of a tricky conflict of interest for sure. And as a parent, you would just never be familiar with the special education world and the IEP process unless you were thrown into it. So I'm hoping that this episode provides some resources. If you are just getting on the IEP train, 
if you think perhaps your kid is behind and needs an evaluation and needs special help, or on the flip side, you're already getting services and they're not satisfactory. So today we're going to talk to Aaron Wright. He is the author of the book, 13 Doors. It is about his journey through the special education world in the public school districts of California, where his daughter goes. And I think she's about 15 now. So this book, I think it starts before kindergarten. So his whole kind of journey and what all happened from his perspective, not his daughter's perspective, obviously. But yeah, so we talk about our respective struggles and we talk about what to do if you are new on the scene. And um, also he makes some really great analogies comparing the special education system to the handicap world. So if you are physically handicapped, you just roll up to wherever you're going and there's a ramp there. It's already built. It's made for you. You get in your wheelchair and you just roll on up. But on the mental special education side, it's like you have to basically fall down this like fall down the stairs and show that you cannot climb the stairs for them to consider building the ramp. And then when they consider building the ramp, well, the ramp, they just might not have the exact ramp that fits you. And so that just might be too bad. So maybe you can just sort of shimmy up it and limp. Um, So we talk about that. And we also talk about how you really don't need to have a kid in the special education program to understand, ally, and advocate for special education rights for all kids. Just like you don't actually need to be a victim of sexual assault to sympathize with the Me Too movement. And sympathizing with the Me Too movement and pushing for special education rights for all is something that benefits all of society. We talk about how these kids do bring their gifts to school. I share the story of how my son, who gets to go to mainstream preschool, actually makes friends with these kids and teaches them about autism. There's a little girl who says, I teach Charlie how to play and he teaches me how to spell. You know, but that wouldn't be possible if he was not able to be in a mainstream class. Um, And I'm not saying that mainstream classes are for everyone. I'm just saying that, you know, the least restrictive environment is a really real thing that a lot of parents push for. So, and that's just one of the many isms, whatever, that come with the IEP process. So if you are in the special needs community, I would love to hear what you think of this show. If you are or you know someone who is just starting down this journey, maybe you think your kid is behind and needs to be evaluated, please let me know what you think. Um, And as always, the number one thing that you can do to support the show is to tell a friend and write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really means so much to me. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to No Sex in the Suburbs. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So as we know, it's springtime now and IEPs are happening. And um, I heard you on a podcast earlier talking about the special education system and your own experience with IEPs. And what you said really hit home to me. You said something like, you don't have to be a victim of sexual abuse to be a supporter of the Me Too movement. And you don't have to be a 
you know, a person who, or a mom or dad of a person who has a kid with an IEP to be a supporter of advocacy for the special education system, which has a lot of flaws, which we will go into. So I just want to start there so everybody kind of knows your background because I think that's really true. And part of what I do about this podcast is, you know, it's a platform for suburban moms, but it's also a way to raise awareness about things um, like for me, autism and advocacy for special ed. Tell me about your experience with your very first IEP. So what happened to me, well, actually my friend called me and she was like, the teachers and the principal called me randomly one day and they think my son needs an IEP. And my initial reaction is just, I'm so mad. I'm so angry about, you know, clearly he's behind in reading. I guess we just need to work on it. This can't really be true. Um, But they say that he's, you know, seriously behind the curve. What was your experience like? Uh, Different. We, uh, we had to approach our school uh, asking for help. It wasn't the other way around, Um, which in retrospect and learning more, it actually should be the way uh, that your your friends process went and that the school should be kind of actively looking for uh, disabled children. Uh, we just didn't have that experience. And so we approached them uh, very early on. So it was in that transition from preschool uh, looking towards going to kindergarten. Um, and thankfully, uh, really thankfully, we'd had uh, some good family friends who had already kind of navigated this process before. Um, we'd walk similar paths. Our kids were on uh, kind of parallel tracks and had, had done a lot of the same early childhood intervention services uh, together in some circumstances. Um, but we went to the school district saying, hey, uh, you know, kind of laying out our case. Uh, this is why our, we think our daughter um, you know, needs special education or should uh, be on an IEP. These are the services she's been receiving essentially since infancy. Um, and these are the areas that we really believe and our therapists really believe she's going to struggle academically in school. And we really want to get things in place before she's, you know, steps toe uh, into a classroom. What grade was this in? So this was prior to enrolling in kindergarten. Okay. Uh, this, this was all kind of in those preschool years. Uh, we had had some early, really, really early interactions. So um, that transition, right, if you're in early intervention services, that transition happens uh, at age three where, you know, if you if your child is identified um, as disabled prior to their third birthday, uh, typically all of those services are kind of organized and paid for uh, by your county or by your regional ca- uh, center system. That funding model then transitions at age three to the school district. Uh, we'd already kind of had some heads up that our school district was really reticent um, to, to place kids uh, on IEPs uh, at that early of an age. Uh, so a lot of that transition we kind of held back on um, and thought, okay, well, let's, you know, we can do some stuff privately, um, but let's really gear up for that entry into kindergarten um, transition. And, and at that point, um, we knew that school was going to be a struggle. So we, as our preschool teacher told us, we gave her an extra year of childhood. Um, you know, we did, she's a, a fall baby. So she could have gone in uh, as a, a late uh, four-year-old um, starting kindergarten, but we knew that that would be uh, really not a smart choice. So we delayed that. And so we had approached them in that year leading up to 
when she would have started uh, kindergarten. And there was a lot of a lot of pushback. Um, you know, this typically isn't something that we do. Uh, we usually like to wait and see, you know, how children do in school. Often these things are, are things that kids grow out of. You know, the kind of a litany of, of excuses as to why uh, to not do any sort of testing or evaluating. So can I ask you about that really quick? I yeah. feel like the wait and see approach is very common with the school district. And yeah. it's like a fail first type of thing. As a parent, if you feel something's up, how do you make the school be proactive instead of reactive? Well, that's just it. You've got to push. Um, and then that's the that's one of the big faults with the system. Uh, being proactive, it makes it sound good that you're being proactive, um, but you're not. You really kind of have to be the policeman of the situation. So one of the good things about the kind of the rules and the laws that are there for uh, children and their families is that there are certain kind of triggers and timelines. So, but you have to know them. So you have to, you know, approach the school in a timely manner, ask for an evaluation. It has to be kind of in, in writing. Um, they have a certain amount of time to determine whether or not uh, testing is going to be done or not. If it's not going to be done, they have to be able to provide you rationale and writing. Um, but that kind of starts the, the process. But, and you as a parent have to really educate yourself about the process. Uh, because if you don't know, it's really easy to kind of get steamrolled. I mean, they, I, it happens all the time where a parent would go to the school and say, hey, look, I'm really concerned that, you know, Johnny's, you know, three grades behind in, in math and is really struggling to keep up in the classroom. They don't, there's no, there's no um, like I said, there's no policeman or there's no um, rule or anything that they would have to follow that says that somebody would have to or proactively be put into uh, special education. So it's, it all all the onus falls on the parents uh, to kind of push through that process. And the, you know, one of the bigger downsides apart from always kind of having to focus on this, you know, fail first deficit model uh, of your child is that additional burden that it puts on the family um, to, to push through because that automatically puts you at odds with the people that are supposed to be there supporting your child. So it really puts immediately puts you kind of in this place of friction uh, with the teachers and with the administration uh, in your school, which is where we found ourselves at the kind of the beginning of this process uh, before we even entered uh, kindergarten. And if you're starting at ground zero, how does a parent educate themselves? And like clearly all parents have jobs or, you know, are stay-at-home moms and are busy. Like how, should you just get an advocate from the get-go? Um, I, I don't know that you have to. Uh, there are. It kind of depends on your environment. So I would say you don't necessarily need to go out and get an advocate, but I think that you should educate yourself about the process before you kind of wade into it. I think there's there's kind of two camps of, pe of people. I think there's uh, folks who, who really don't know that their child is disabled as they move into school and there's there's groups of people that do know that their child is disabled as they move into school and i i think those two groups of people really have to kind of approach it differently um the group who knows hopefully those you know therapists or the kind of the preschool team or those early intervention uh, therapists and personnel really should help kind of 
help you walk through uh, that process or at least introduce you to it. And we'll be able to provide uh, background information, right? Because even by the point where our daughter was three years old, we'd already kind of amassed, uh, you know, binders full of uh, assessments, testing, you know, evaluations, recommendations, um, you name it. But when you walk in cold or you don't know, like you were saying earlier, your friend who was told that their child should be on an IEP, if you don't kind of have that background information, uh, oftentimes it's much harder to make your case. It isn't impossible. Um, and you, you would go through the normal steps of saying, I, you know, I think my child should be evaluated for special education. Um, but then you, if you meet resistance there, if the answer is ultimately no, you kind of need to know what your fallback steps are in terms of, uh, you know, an independent evaluation or pushing the process in a different way or going through what they call due process, which is to kind of formally argue uh, your case against the school district. I, I don't know about an advocate right off the bat. I, I, I'm a little gun shy to say, yes, that's what you should do automatically, because I think it puts um, families and teachers in an awkward position. Um, and really what you want to do is be able to establish trust. And I think if you've got a third party in there, uh, as good as those intentions might be, I think it might set you off on the wrong foot. Now, it doesn't mean that you at some point shouldn't have an advocate. Um, you know, very, very clearly if things are going south for you or things are not working well or the, the district that you're working with or the, you know, the particular classroom that you're working with uh, not only is not working for you but is working against you, then yes, absolutely. Uh, but my but maybe that's just my own personality type is to not immediately be confrontational and find out what they can and can't do and, and um, kind of take those early navigation steps to see if you can't establish a relationship because, you know, depending upon your life circumstances is if you're walking into kindergarten uh, with your child, you're going to be with this school, not necessarily that particular school, but maybe that school district and those level of administrators for the next 12 years. Uh, and you have to have some sort of relationship, a constructive relationship with them. Uh, otherwise, uh, you're going to have a you know over a decade's worth of fighting, and that you know that has consequences for uh, a child. It has consequences for your own emotional, mental health. Your consequences for you know your your relationship with your spouse, your partner. So I, I would you know try and you know, play the game, and I put that in quotes uh, early on, and see what comes. Um, but have a, you know, a, a short trigger for, um, engaging an advocate that, uh, it doesn't really cost anything to educate yourself, uh, right up front. Right. So there's a couple, I can think of a couple, um, you know, online advocacy sites that kind of help prep parents to navigate the process. And those would be really smart choices. Can you send me the links to those and I'll put them in the show uh, notes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So. You mentioned, so you had a relationship with the regional center earlier intervention and then the transition came and the school district didn't want to do an evaluation? There was pushback. Yeah. So there was, um, gosh, this is, and this kind of gets into, I think your earlier question, if you don't put it in writing, it's not going to happen. So I think one of our earlier trip ups was to, uh, kind of make these requests verbally. 
you know, make phone calls, see how the process works. Uh, you know, we were new, naive parents. Uh, and so, and we'd kind of been given prep by other families that the school was really resistant and we met that resistance and we were kind of weighed the risk benefits. Do we really want to fight uh, to get her enrolled into something and then have these services just be completely inadequate? Or do we want to maintain what we've been doing through our county, which we know have been you know, productive, working, um, you know, she seems happy and well-adjusted. Um, we really have a relationship with these therapists. They're almost like family. And so at that point, we opted to just say, okay, you know, forget it, the three-year-old um, transition. Let's focus on gearing her up towards that transition for kindergarten. And then when we approached at that point, yeah, we did everything the way it should have been done, which was to put it in writing, uh, you know, to bring all of that prior documentation with us. Uh, and at that, there really was, there was hesitancy um, to test. Um, they knew that we wanted it. They couldn't really fight that. Um, but they found more kind of nefarious means to push back, which was, um, you know, altering or mistesting. Um, wow. Our, our daughter. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I feel like I've kind of just had dumb luck through a lot of this process. Um, again, I was really thankful to have uh, friends uh, that had gone through and navigated the process ahead of us. So we kind of, you know, they laid out the few, you know, first few mile markers. So we knew kind of what to expect. Um, but professionally, I've really been thankful to have relationships with people who, uh, you know, work in the therapy world and know these testing uh, materials, know the tests actually in depth themselves. So when the testing with the, when the initial testing happened with the district, you know, I, we sat down with it and I was like, this is absolutely, this cannot be the truth. Um, you know, we'd known from all sorts of prior testing that she was testing, you know, well below uh, the bottom quartile in terms of uh, achievement or placement or whatever you want to say on any of these tests. And then we turn around and the district essentially administers the exact same test, but slightly different version, you know, and she up near the top, um, you know, just that difference uh, made absolutely no sense. So that really gave us strong pause. Um, and again, thankful for the people in my life, uh, took that information um, and had it evaluated for whether or not the test was actually done correctly, if it was, you know, if it was administered correctly, if it was scored correctly, um, and kind of a whole bunch of other conditions that need to be met in order for these things to be valid. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it really wasn't. So it, there is, you know, there's passive resistance to parents and then there's active resistance. I don't. I don't know how often, you know, this happens to families, um, but there's pretty good data out there to suggest that at least one in five children have a disability, um, which would be 20%, right? The, you know, we were talking earlier, the percentage of children, at least in California, enrolled in special education hovers anywhere from 12 to 15%, typically it's somewhere in the middle, uh, which means you're, miss you're missing, um, five, seven, uh, eight percent uh, of kids. So either the testing is flawed for those children, um, it's misadministered for those children, or there's uh, active resistance and pushback uh, to enrolling those children in special education. Wow. So it's a, you know, it's a, you know, it's a screwy system, which is why, 
you know, I, I put it in writing because I didn't think anybody would believe it. <laughs> you mean your book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I have a question. I have so many questions. I didn't yeah. even think about the testing, you know, being wrong or right or what. I just took that at face value. But so for us, what happened is we, t- you know, we got evaluated um, and my son qualified for speech and he qualified for social supports. And the social supports, I think, are totally, well, I think they were totally worthless. And then it was COVID and then it was like virtual worthless. Um, (laughs) So like I declined and they have something it's called IBI, which I think is like adjacent to ABA, but it's not ABA. One day what happened, something happened and I'm not even allowed to talk to the techs who support my son at recess. I have to talk to the autism specialist who manages, you know, 8 million children or whatever. Um, So something happened, I guess she pushed my son too far. And then the next day he started crying and saying, no, please, mommy, I don't want to go to school. The teachers are scary. The students are scary. You know, so I go to the teacher and I'm like, what happened? And she's like, oh, I don't know. And then I guess the, the IBI tutor said something did happen. And Charlie became upset. So I called an IEP addendum meeting, which is what I thought we were supposed to do all over the phone. The autism specialist doesn't even show up. And so, you know, nothing is amended to his treatment plan. And then finally, we go back and forth over weeks of, I finally get her on a phone call for five minutes. And she says, look, we've basically been round robbing your tutors because, um, it's COVID and like whoever can show up shows up. And, you know, the thing with IBI is that if we put out um, like a demand, like your son must comply and we are basically going to ride his ass until he complies. And it doesn't really matter what, you know, if he says no, like expressing consent is not important or valued or of any consequence whatsoever because it's a non-preferred task and they don't care. And I'm like, well, I'm not okay with that. And they're like, well, you can decline services because this is all we have. And then, yeah. and then where do you, and then where do you go? Right. Right. Well, I think at that point you, you, you get an advocate, um, either get an advocate or you start talking, which some of these details I can't necessarily get into, but you, you, you look for legal help. There's so many things fundamentally wrong, uh, with what happens in schools. Um, I think there's a lot of people, look, I, I, I go back and forth, but I, I really want to make this clear. I think that parents and teachers ultimately are on the same side of this issue. Um, you know, they're on the kid's side, right? They, they're, everybody's there for the kid. When I think when you start in these kind of concentric circles, moving outward from closeness to the child, and I would add that if you were, you know, doing rotating or round robin, um, you know, therapizing, if that's even a word, um, with, with the kid, then you kind of lose that connectivity Absolutely. and you, lo- and you lose what's uh, important and what is important in the school situation is, is that child, does that child have access, right, to their education? When I think of special education, I really try to frame it for people in the same way I frame physical disability. So, you know, is that ramp there so that the person in a wheelchair can't access the building, right? That's what special education is supposed to be doing. But I think people, when they start moving away from 
right? The, the closer you are to the child and you start moving away from that, you start to just kind of, well, you lose track of what's important, uh, but you're also less invested um, and you apply, um, I guess, more generic um, and sometimes archaic um, modes of therapy or treatment, if you want to call that, uh, to a kids that, that can really actually be very harmful. Yeah. So I don't, you can't, I, you know, to say, well, you know, it's either this or nothing. Um, I, that I would, I'd lose my lid. I think, uh, if I was in that situation, because that's, that's, you know, it's like, no, the ramp is made out of gravel and the slope is way too steep. So what you're saying is that either I can't have the ramp, right. Or I've got to have this thing that does not work. What, no, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to level that thing out and you're supposed to pave it and you're most, you're supposed to make sure that the pitch is right. So, you know, that same ideology has to be mapped to, you know, how we allow access for, for children with disabilities that aren't physical. Yeah, I totally I that agree. Makes sense. No, it makes, <laughs> it makes it makes perfect sense. Like there's a ramp, but that ramp doesn't work for my son. So you need to fix the ramp and it doesn't mean so like so he has nothing like literally they're like, well, and, and it's been like this. I think you posted on social media, like one word, what would you use one word to describe your special ed experience? And mine is stalemate because, you know, there was friendship builders and I was like, okay, like, I don't really know what this is doing, but whatever. It's twice a week and, you know, let's give it a shot. And then it was um, COVID and it was literally like, here's this cartoon dinosaur that's buffering (laughs) and like, does he have a friendly face? I'm like, how is that going to help my son in like a real world scenario? Like learn how, you know, and they, again, it was, you know, take it or leave it. You can decline. This is all we have. This is all we have in the whole district. Um, And now again, they're like, this is all we have in the whole district. So you can say you disagree with our, our evaluation led to give offer him this. So you can say that you disagree with the evaluation. So I did. And then they declined my request for an IEE. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how well, and I don't know that they really can. Um, Again, that's probably where I would get, you know, start seeking advocates or or, or legal advice. But that's, uh, you know, the first letter in IEP, right, is individualized. These are not general. These are not generalized programs. Right. I don't care what the, what you have for your general student body. This is what my child needs. This is this is this is what my child needs in order to access their education. What you are providing does not provide access to their education. And those when you start to make those arguments, they start to hold a little bit more legal water. The problem is, is that it takes years right, of documenting failures on the district's part or on the school's part. Um, for you to be able to 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 make a a good or cogent argument in front of a uh, an ALJ or a due process hearing, so and, it's 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 just it's just so wrong. And they're the ones who are grading it. So after you know them saying it's IBI or nothing, take it or leave it, I was like, okay, well, give me the data because I can't even talk to the people. So give me the right. data. They didn't give me any way to interpret the data, right? Like I don't know how to read a you know IBI therapy thing. So side note, which I'm going to get into, um, and that I want to yeah. ask you about, we have, uh, or through insurance, we're doing private, um, ABA therapy. And so I had my tech read it. And the first thing she looks at is says, it's all verbal prompts. You know, Charlie's a visual kid. Why would they right. like, you know, so now I'm like, oh, great. They're doing like the, the thing that doesn't work for him. So 
I was going to ask you, it's such a headache and so much education and such a heavy lift to try to go against the school district to get what you think that you need. Did you ever consider, and I realize this is like kind of privileged, but um, to go privately, to pay for whatever therapies that you think you need through private insurance? Because that's where we are right now is like, I pay for ABA through my insurance and they report to me. You know, right. like it's not me right. harassing the district. Um, right. And I did speak to an attorney about it. And he was like, look, you know, you can drop 20 to 40 K sue in the school district and it may it may work or you can roll that money into like privately funded things. So right. that's my question for you also. Uh, yeah, all of the above. So um, we did do privately paid um, and that's a whole different kind of world to try and navigate. Uh, but also getting your health insurer to try and pick that up. Um, Cause oftentimes if you go to them, you know, if you go to the insurance company or at least for, uh, you know, our circumstance, they'll try and funnel you into uh, a provider that might not necessarily work for you or might, you know, prescribe to some sort of therapy that uh, you just feel is, is wrong and not right for your child. Um, but yeah, we did. We went through private and kind of to your earlier question, one of the biggest allies we had in those IE, early IEP meetings uh, were some of our private uh, therapists uh, who agreed to come and advocate on our behalf for what they thought would be uh, appropriate, you know, accommodations, assessment, uh, testing, or, or treatment um, methodologies. But, but they, you know, it's quickly dismissed by the district, but at least you've got somebody there, they're sitting there, and they are uh, on the record I think that they're tough to navigate for a lot of reasons. And, and one is your child spends the predominance of their day at school. Um, and what we found a lot of it was, you know, she would keep it together or what was happening at school really was just kind of a bandaid or if you want to even call it a bridge. Um, and she would just kind of survive that day come home completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. And what we were doing you know, in the private world really was to try and, you know, pull that back together uh, and build any sort of resiliency uh, within her. I mean, the, you know, the joke in our house was the the best therapy um, that the school was providing was Saturday and Sunday, wow. which was, you know, the, the, <laughs> the takes that she wasn't there. And ultimately, um, you know, I kind of get there in the, in the book a little bit, so it is it is public knowledge. But, you know, ultimately for us, the way through was, was out. You moved. Um, yeah. Yeah, we moved. And not only we did we move, but and that, and that kind of gets into a whole different set of circumstances that I, I don't think are perfect. I mean, I really do believe that public education fundamentally should work for everybody. The reality is, is that it doesn't. Our kids are devalued. Um, you know, the, in a lot of school districts, their graduation rates aren't even considered or kind of factored into what they promote wow. uh, as, you know, as the graduation rate. Um, and if it is, um, you know, they've got kind of this secret hidden alternative track, which is we're both California, right? So, you know, there's the UC or CSU requirements for graduation, right, which would get you your high school diploma, meaning that uh, you've met the requirements to be able to make it to one of the four-year um, universities in the state. 
And then there's the rung below, which is essentially you just kind of get a certificate of completion, right? It's like getting a participation medal at the end of a soccer game. Like you managed to survive and, you know, the school didn't kill you um, through your, through your senior year. Here you go. But that piece of paper really doesn't confer any sort of ability to move on um, in terms of going on with your education. So it's, it, I, I fundamentally, I believe that everybody should have access to education in reality for so many families. Um, it is a circumstance that just does not work. And the people who manage to kind of muddle through and get some sort of appropriate access or accommodations for their children tend to be, you know, middle class, maybe upper middle class and, and have the awareness and knowledge to be able to fight and push back. You know, they know to get an advocate, they know that they can get an attorney. Um, the folks who don't, um, you know, are just kind of uh, swept aside. But yeah, we ultimately, uh, I don't know how much I can talk about, but we ultimately landed in a, uh, a more homogenous environment. And I don't know that that's good. Um, you know, the, the school that we landed in um, really was for children kind of similarly uh, disabled. Uh, and it really, there really wasn't a whole lot of diversity. You know, I pushed early on for inclusion in the classroom and, you know, I think, you know, quote unquote, mainstreaming or what they refer to as the least restrictive environment, really because I thought it was, and I still do think it's really important that my daughter been educated in the general classroom, right? Have access to, even if not participating in, at least being able to see kind of general social interaction and have access to the same kind of curriculum and classroom that everybody else did. I also argue that the other side is that non-disabled children actually have the right to be disabled or right to be educated alongside of disabled children. That's how we build empathy, right? That's how we build community. That's how we see people not as lesser, but as equals because being disabled does not mean that you're lesser. Uh, doesn't mean that you're defective. Doesn't mean that you're deficient, but the model current model of special education certainly paints those kids in our families in that light. Yeah, totally. There's a little girl in Charlie's class and she said, so my son, in addition to his deficits, he also has gifts. So school right. is doubly challenging because while the other kids are learning how to like sound out their letters or maybe read the word cat, you know, my son is like light years ahead of that. And so she asks him how to spell things and he teach and she says to, you know, Charlie has Charlie needs to learn how to play with kids so I teach him how to play right you know? and if he wasn't in a mainstream class that would never happen right what a gift yeah but that's right? just lucky that's just the luck of one random right. nice neurotypical girl right right but that should be cultivated by schools and, it, and it's it just it's not <laughs> yeah but I, but I, what I'm getting at though is I don't because sometimes I get asked these questions where I think people try and I think they uh, there is a tendency for parents like us to be used as a wedge issue politically, uh, meaning that, uh, and I don't want to go too far into politics, but meaning that you know it's clearly that your your public education system, in your experience, has been really bad. It's not working for you. Um, so why not do private, or why not do charter? Right? Why not take that public money and put it into some place that maybe your child will do better? 
Um, the reality of that is, is that, that maybe there are a handful of circumstances where that does work for families, but that they're equally problematic um, for a myriad of other different reasons. The, the long view of it or the wide view is that really education isn't built for our children. And unfortunately, as, as parents, um, you know, you, we've got, you're going to go through at least a decade, if not longer, of having to push, fight, and bend, and make these systems work for our kids. And it is an unending fight. I mean, uh, my wife is a professional, <laughs> but she has not really worked outside of the home um, for as long as our daughter's been alive, which has been, you know, 15 years. And a lot of that stems from the fact that the it is a full-time job advocating for your kids. Mm-hmm. I was. Um, a, this is right. <laughs> I was a global Sorry. media director, and I worked for very big, famous clients, and um, I quit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was the end of that. So yeah, right. Because the the world isn't built to accommodate families like ours. It's just it's, and, and the systems aren't built to accommodate our children. So and and they be, they become harmful at some point, right? I mean, when does you know we really that was one of the kind of ongoing conversations in our house was well, when does this become more harmful than helpful, right? When does when does forcing her to go to school uh, unsupported or partially or mal supported uh, when does that become where's the breaking point? When does this become something that you know, she's going to at some point in her 30s or 40s be talking about with her therapist that her parents made her do. You know what? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my son, you know, for him to express himself and say, no, mommy, please, I don't want to go. They're scary. That's a right. huge deal. Like right. that. And you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to honor that. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about homeschool? Yeah, we did. In fact, we did it. <laughs> and how was that? Uh, uh, hard really really hard um you know there's so it it's interesting that it kind of mirrors today right it kind of mirrors covid um and i think a lot of um even neurotypical parents now uh, or parents of neurotypical children what their experience has been like um you know having to kind of put everything on pause um and attend to being the teacher at home and that's it's really difficult. You know, I'm not trained as a teacher. Uh, my wife uh, is, but she was, you know, high school math, not early elementary. Um, and at that, not a special education teacher. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I mean, thankfully, we had a lot of people in our lives that helped us navigate this kind of stuff. We had a lot of, um, again, private therapy help that was kind of instrumental in this. Uh, but we did do the, well, she'd effectively been kicked out of of school, um, told that there was no placement for her. Public school? Yeah. yeah. I, I thought yeah. they weren't allowed to kick you out of public school. No, they're not. Um, which <laughs> that's great. <laughs> which is which is like I don't. I mean, a real kind of a whole different story. But effectively removed her from the classroom and then told us that there was no other option, really, for her, and kind of put us in the position where. Um, we were forced to remove her from her elementary school and, uh, and the town we lived in, uh, there is uh, a school for what's called independent study, uh, which is effectively homeschool, which is, you know, they might give you some curriculum. They'll give you some, some ditto sheets of, 
you know, math problems and, and sentences to do, but really it's, um, it's all on your own. Wow. So it was, and then it became a fight, um, to get her back into, um, back mainstream, back into a regular classroom. After that, we did it for a year. Um, and it really, that wasn't, it was an awful year for, it was a good year in that it kind of allowed us to hit reset, kind of reevaluate what we were doing and, and what we wanted to do long-term, um, and helped us kind of reframe what we wanted to do, but it was right. What are we fighting? What, are, why are we fighting to get her back into a classroom that doesn't want her there? Yeah. So no, 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 long, long, complicated story, but it's through kind of like all of these podcasts in the book, I've heard from so many people that our story is not unique. Uh, so many people have had so many horrific things done to them that I think back about the things that occurred for us. And I'm like, wow, I guess that wasn't a, a it was bad during the moment, but B it's not in perspective. It's not nearly as bad as some folks experiences. Wow. Okay. So to sum up for everybody who's maybe just staring down the barrel of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number one, educate yourself. Number two, don't be afraid to seek advocacy. Number three, you might do private, you might do homeschool. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Well, I think you have to meet your child where they are um, as best as you can. You know, if you really think that they would, you know, thrive in, in that public school environment, fight for it. Um, you know, if if just, you know, the cacophony of the classroom is overwhelming and too much and they really need a smaller learning environment, you know, fight for that. Maybe initially that smaller learning environment is at home, but with an eye towards getting into a program um, that is more tailored or more suited to their needs. But really it's, it's I mean, every parent is, is their child's expert, Um and I would do that in partnership with the experts that you've brought in uh, to your life, right? Your private and even even some of the even some of the therapists and the aides that we had in the public school system really were, you know, quote unquote, on our side and knew kind of the direction that we should be going. So it's you kind of have to synthesize all of that. But yeah, I, the bullet points you hit earlier were I think spot on. Educate yourself about the process. Find you know an advocate, and then really kind of tailor your program to where, uh, what your child's specific needs are. And if those are falling apart, you know, you gotta, I think you have to escalate that, um, you know, seeking legal advice. But for those folks kind of just walking into this, right, you've, maybe you've just gotten a diagnosis. Um, really it's that educating yourself, A, about your child, but just about the process. And I'll give you those websites later, but, you know, even just finding somebody, um, that has already gone through the process or knows how to write these form letters for you, right? Like, you know, Johnny is struggling in math. I really would like him tested in all areas of suspected disability just to, to start that paper trail and help you kind of establish yourself in, in this world, if that makes sense. It's so funny because just hearing you, I just look back and I'm like, I did that wrong and I did that wrong and I did that wrong. <laughs> No, I know. And, you, you know, the, the, one of the awful things is that parents end up feeling like they're doing things wrong. Um, and you as the parent assume a lot of that blame, right? I mean, we would move mountains for our kids. You know, neurotypical, disabled, it doesn't matter. 
Um, but you're put in kind of an unwinnable situation and you as the parent end up feeling like a failure. Compounding that is that the way that the system is built, it is so much deficit focus, right? So you're always looking at what your child cannot do instead of embracing who they are. And it really builds this kind of negative view of not only your child, but your parenting. And it's, I mean, I, I really think these the schools and the systems are doing real damage to families, like real emotional trauma by forcing you to go through, you know, you, if you were in a wheelchair, a, you know, a, the public library wouldn't force you to focus on uh, your inability to walk, you know, at, at triennial meetings or annual IEPs or calling emergency IEP meetings to discuss, you know, access to the building. It's just built in and it's just there and that accommodation is understood, whereas it's just in the developmental disability world. It, it just absolutely is not. And then parents end up shouldering that. And is that... And internalizing it. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree with you there. Um, is that why you wrote your book? To try to get the school, the, the system to change? Yeah. So there was handful of reasons I wrote the book kind of the overarching theme absolutely was to to see if things couldn't change but in the middle of this I don't and I don't know how you felt I don't know how your listeners feel but I really felt alone um I really felt like oh my god this is even though we'd had people that we knew that had gone through this it felt like such a minority of people it felt like such a slim slice of our community um, was trying to navigate and deal with these things and, and purposefully, maybe not purposefully and purposefully, um, you know, disability parents are, are siloed, right? If, if I get access for something for my daughter, right, some accommodation, that isn't generalized mm -hmm. to the rest of the student body, right? It's only part of her IEP. So you don't get to see other parents fighting, other parents' advocacy, you know, what other parents have managed to kind of achieve or get for their children. Um, and so it's this really, it, it, I feel like it's very isolating. So for me, it was, it started as just kind of catharsis, right? Writing out my thoughts, like this is how I'm going to process and deal with the adversity that I'm feeling right now uh, and what's happening to my child. Um, but then the, the kind of slow realization that we are not alone, and this is a much bigger issue than, you know, what's happening within our family. It's happening to probably one in five of my neighbors, right? If you believe the statistics. Um, and as the story's kind of made it out there, it, I really am getting that feedback that this is a universal story. Like, oh my God, you so represented exactly what happened to us. But then turning it into a story that is accessible to, um, you know, the parents of neurotypical children so that they get a sense of what our life is like. And they get, you know, as much as it is a mirror for parents like us, uh, it's a window in uh, for families that aren't raising a disabled child so that they know how difficult the struggle can be um, to see if they can't, you know, see if we can't kind of cultivate, cultivate allies and institute change because these are the parents, you know, Parents like us are too tired to be on the school board, right? We're too tired to be on the P we're too tired to be on the PTA, right? We're not in positions of necessarily of power or influence to change these systems. Uh, but if we can get the attention uh, of people who are right, like we were talking earlier about, like the Me Too movement, you know, I don't have to be 
a woman or the victim of misogyny or sexual assault to really be supportive of that. But I had to be aware, right? Yeah. For, you know, for the majority of my life, I was completely unaware of what was happening to women um, in that respect. And so once I did have that awareness, I was like, oh my gosh, we need to, this needs to be changed. How can I educate myself and what can I do to be supportive of that community? I think the same thing needs to happen in the disability community. So my hope really was to put a book out there that people, you know, would be able to connect to the story. Um, I wanted it to be authentic so people felt invested. Um, and hopefully it will change, you know, hearts and minds, so to speak, and, and build some of those allies and relationships with people that are, are, are in positions of power so that we can start to influence and change the system. I mean, it, it feels awful and it feels overwhelming, I think, as a parent individually trying to fight the system. Uh, but things change. I mean, the one constant in life is change and, and things can be changed, right? Parents like you telling your story, putting it out there, writing a book that, it, you know, anybody can pick up and read, I think is, you know, how things happen. And things have happened if you look at the evolution of the idea, you know, whatever idea Absolutely. stands for. <laughs> doing well, a great yeah. job. No, yeah, Individuals with Disability Education Act, which yes. is, I mean, that is part of it, right? So if you think back, you know, Brown versus Board of Education in the long view really wasn't that long ago. So, you know, the fact that discrimination was not only happening and segregation was not only happening, but was the law of the land in so many places, right? To, to be able to say, okay, well, that's, there is change in that direction, maybe not complete, um, not perfect, but there has been some sort of progress. The law that idea um, is spawned from is as old as I am. It was, you know, first signed into law in 1975. And it's, you know, it's kind of, it's update, so to speak, happened under the first Bush administration, which was when I was in high school. And, you know, I'm long since out of high school. Yeah, maybe so, it's due for an update. So it is due for an update, but it nothing ever gets updated without, you know, kind of an uproar or some sort of grassroots movement or some sort of, you know, political pressure to get people to change. That's right. Well, Aaron, I applaud you so much for making writing your book, making your story public. And um, your book is called 13 Doors. It's it available is. on Amazon, right? Yeah, Amazon on my website. Okay. And um, if people want to follow you on social media, what is your handle? Uh, it's at author Aaron Wright. Awesome. And I yeah. will um, put links to that in the show notes. Um, Perfect. Thank you so much for um, joining me today. This was really great and I really hope it helps help some some moms out there and also gains us some advocates for the special education world absolutely and thank you so much for having me I mean this I mean I really have to thank people who um, especially if your platform isn't necessarily geared towards special education or disability rights um, using a platform to do this um, is I think how we're gonna institute change so I, I sincerely thank you for having me on Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> you are very welcome. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so before we go really quick, I'm starting this little bit at the end called shit I bought on the internet. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, was there any anything that you bought on the internet this week that you think is awesome that you'd like to share? It can be. I did, but th I did. But this is um, this is a mom show, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it so is. This is going to be a total, this is a total fail. But and maybe this is really sexist and misogynist on my part. But so I bought 
um, the fence I have around my house is falling down. So I've, I'm needing to do some refencing, and I hate digging post holes. If anybody who's ever done that knows how backbreaking and horrible it is to use a, a post hole digger. So I bought online uh, a gas-powered auger, which is essentially just this oversized drill that drills into the dirt and digs those post holes, holes for you. And I first used it this last weekend, and oh my god, I'm in love. <laughs> it, it's me. <laughs> I'm sure it's horrible for the environment. Um, Why? Because it digs a, up dirt? No, because it's a two-stroke, two-cycle gas engine. Oh. Um, but it's it's made my life so much easier. Um, well, good. So I don't. Yeah, no. So it's that would be my my. I don't. Sorry, I don't buy more traditional. No. Um, it, things online but <laughs> hey you never know maybe somebody out there is needing to redo if somebody out there who is needing to redo their fence or what i've also discovered with it is that if you're um, trying to plant like if you want to plant a tree or large shrubs uh, it's great for starting those holes so, so funny yeah <laughs> all right well thanks so um <laughs> yeah. send me the link to that and I will. uh yeah i'll post it all right Aaron, yeah. thank you so much have a wonderful rest of your week and i'll talk to you later Thank you. You too. All right. Take care. All right. All right bye.